We're going to start with me and then go to you, okay? <laughs> yeah, why don't we start with you and then go to me? <laughs> okay. okay, my name is Kent Dahlgren, and this is... Ruth Glendinning. And we're going to talk about the Anti-Fragile Playbook. Because we're anti-fragile, and we want you to be, too. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, good morning, y'all. It's the day after um, Halloween, and my daughters are sitting around bags of candy. And uh, I hope you guys had a good Halloween as well. We did. We it did. was great here in Austin. Yeah. 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 I got Ruth Glendinning, and we've got Chris Kane. Chris, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi. My name is Chris Kane, and I work for Alternatives Federal Credit Union in Ithaca, New York, and that is a community development credit union. And so what, what that means is uh, we, uh, we, invest in, we invest in people. And the way that we do that, and we invest in communities, and we do community building and business building, and we happen to do that through banking, even though we're a credit union, um, and we happen to do that through banking. But what that really means is we offer a wide range of financial tools, we offer education, and support to go along with them to help people build wealth and, and get out of poverty by using traditional and non-traditional tools um, through our financial institutions. So, mm. uh, so we're all about community-based banking and lending and educating people to make um, not only their lives a little bit more financially secure, but their neighborhoods too. Yeah, well, we've really enjoyed, we've had a lot of conversations with Chris. Um, because she, she ends up sharing these really great examples. Like so far, Ruth and I have talked a lot about, um, you know, uh, soft capital and, and how the unlocking of various forms of soft capital can, can really get hard capital flowing. And all of a sudden we got a hard capital person. And Chris has these <laughs> great, <laughs> she has these great, great stories about how they, they go about providing access to hard capital for, for communities with kind of this emphasis on the smaller communities. Um, that is really pretty neat, you know, uh, I don't know, like that, like we were just actually, you know, because the way these podcasts begin is we just get on the call and we start talking and then we realize we're, you know, 30, 40 minutes into a conversation and then we're like, okay, well, maybe we should get going. But you were just talking about character-based lending. You want to start there? Oh, sorry. I just, I lost you guys. <laughs> uh, character-based character yeah. lending? Character-based lending. Um, you know, what's, what was interesting is Alternatives has been doing character-based lending for decades, but we're taking that up to another level to really start uh, boldly putting into our, not only our marketing, but our policies that govern the way that we lend money. So what I mean by character-based lending is that you guys probably know that if you go, you go and apply for a loan and uh, the, that loan officer is going to pull your credit report and, and you know, ask you how much money you make and or if you're starting a business or if you're going to start a business, how much money are you going to make? And that's normally, and I use that in quotes, there's a lot more that goes along with it. That is normally how decisions for hard capital are made. And because of that, we're really seeing that the system is not only broken, but it doesn't work for most people. <laughs> if you take a look and right. see who gets capital for uh, to, to start a business, um, most people get it from their friends or their family or from predatory lending. And I can get into that in, in a little bit too. But what I mean by character-based lending is I'll give an example with a, a small business is rather than just pulling your credit report and finding out how much money you're going to make, we want to know a few things. You know, who are you as a person? 
Right. What we're going to do is see how plugged in to your community we, you are. And we want to know, are you the one who, uh, um, who everybody in their neighborhood drops their kids off because they trust you? Are right. you the one who goes to the, who is very active in PTA meetings, you know, every month? Are you the one who um, organizes church gatherings every Sunday to make sure that people are connecting well? Right. I mean, that is what we mean by character-based lending, is we want to know who you are. We also want to know how is your um, company going to benefit the community, right? So what kind of problem are you trying to solve? And how do you right. as a person fit into solving that problem as well as the, um, the people who are buying your product or service? How are they a part of the solution too? You never see yeah. any of those things on a credit report or in a business plan. The thing well, is- Well, if I'm not mistaken- Yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, if I'm not mistaken, the credit, the whole credit report thing is not credit report, but credit score is actually, I think, around the worthiness to purchase a home. Is that correct? Something like that. It, it ends up being like a lot of what you're talking about is that there's sort of this the bottom line, which is um, the, 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 the bottom margin is, you know, are you are you a good customer, basically? Right. And or can we, or can we and that's well, or can we trust you with our money? Yeah. Right? And, and, and I, I think that, that what we have to bring in here, too, is. How are you contributing to the character of the community? Yes. It's not just you as an individual. It's like, how are you, you know, holding the roots of the story and contributing to the rise? Right. Yes. And so that's why it's important to have these hyper local businesses and to have people who know the story of the community and are seeking ways to uh, deepen the opportunity for everybody, not just themselves. Right. Not any. Well, I you are absolutely that's what our small businesses and i keep going to our small businesses right now um that's what they do they right. build jobs within the community they offer the, mm -hmm. the soul of our neighborhoods right no so it is equally important to bring in the culture well, and soul of the person who is running that company and and i love I that you use the phrase soul of the neighborhood right. you know <laughs> because you can't have that with actual without actual humans you know and it yeah. shouldn't that be a part of every part of building either mm -hmm. a business or a person financially right well, yeah you know i have to be i have to be honest like um the banking system as it stands right now with access to money everywhere um you know online predatory because it's actually pretty easy to get money but that but how how expensive, it's so expensive to, to be poor, right? Um, but not only how expensive is it, but is integrity and respect built into how you get that money? No, actually it's completely and utterly left out because those financial institutions don't, don't give two bleeps about your soul and about who you are as a person. They just want your money. Yeah, well, that's the thing is I was going to share an anecdote um, that actually really brought this thing home for me. You know, as you guys know, I started in, well, started a long time ago because I'm kind of old, but I um, worked in information security. Careful, and I'm about yeah. your age, so 
I'm not that old. True. Well, I'm older than both <laughs> of you, so whatever. <laughs> but I, um, I was, uh, 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 you know, I was working in information security and anti-fraud, and we noted it, and we were monitoring, you know, almost seven billion devices, um, and so that was like every single Amazon transaction, every Citibank transaction, thousands of vendors. And when you're working with machine learning at that level, you start to make some really interesting insights. And one of them is that there's a relation, there's a relationship between low battery life and, and, and in instances of fraud. Right. And it didn't take long to probe into that. It's essentially people that are sitting at that margin between um, being in houses and being out of houses. Right. Like right. I hate to use the, the term homeless. So, Anyway, then an interesting thing happened in 2017 that really kind of cracked me open on this is that, you know, I ended up literally on the streets. My, my wife um, had me move out because we were going to get a divorce and I ended up living in my truck. So here I went from, you know, working on working in the city, one of Portland's biggest buildings to literally sleeping in my old Isuzu Trooper. And because I'm a vet, I connected to vets. That was my first entry point into that that community. And uh, what you learn right off the bat is it's not at all what you think it is. Because, of course, when you're in homes or you're in houses, you see the people that are on the streets and it ends up being entirely fear based. Right. You know, so one phenomenon that's in Portland, for instance, is there's people that are in, in RVs and, and campers and talking to them is really interesting. They're not bums. They're uh, their business has failed <laughs> every single one of them. And it's a really interesting wow. thing. I, I don't know about you. I've been pretty prosperous in my life, but I've never been able to afford an RV. And yet these people had RVs. It was the last last thing they had so and and they weren't there's this common trope that you know well the city makes these services available so they bust them in that's total nonsense it, it happens some sometimes there's some cities that'll shuttle them around that happened with portland for a lot of years the different cities would put them on buses um but man in my experience an overwhelming majority of them were people who were literally from the region their business had failed their their health had failed something had happened the, the last tent pole got kicked out they load up their RV, they load off their camper and they go back to the Willamette Valley because that's where they're from, only to find that it's not really for them anymore. It's basically a bedroom community of Silicon Valley, right? So there's nowhere they can afford. And, and unlike places in Texas, it's basically surrounded by forest, right? So, you know, what are you going to do? So then when you get to know those people, the first thing they're doing, they're falling over themselves to share with you their experience. They actually have a lot of pertinent experience. What I ran into over and over again is that they were really handy. They wanted to do, uh, they wanted to make a living, um, uh, 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 basically just by doing um, projects for the neighbors. But what they run into is that the neighbors, there's no basis of reputation, right? <laughs> like, what are you right. going to do? You're going to knock on the door and say, "Hey, I'm the guy who um, sleeps in the camper, uh, and I know you guys um, call the cops on me all the time, but can I fix your fence?" Basically, like, it just isn't. It was a frustrating. It was a point of frustration, right? And then so immediately afterwards, I, I um, was hired as a chief technology officer for a company that was making decentralized um, uh, governance for, you know, uh, refugees, um, uh, Syrians, Palestinians, that kind of thing. And I realized that the same dynamic exists within refugee camps. People have significant experience and, and, um, and a lot of value, but because they're not sitting in a house, they don't, they're completely dismissed. They're treated as if they're trash. They're completely disregarded, right? And so I think it's important to acknowledge that there may be a strata of our of our communities that we might have to incorporate, right? And Ruth and I talk about this all the time. Um, and that's really what forced me, um, my focus away from large dollar lending to like basically microcredit, you know, like I mean, sometimes what people need, the thing that's going to make a difference is like 40 bucks. <laughs> it's not like 40,000. It's that, right? So I, I don't know if you have anything to say on that, on that issue, but it's, I feel like it's one that's worth bringing forward. Um, on the, uh, on, on the home piece or yeah, whatever, 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 whatever piece. <laughs> yeah. 
No, I agree with you about, um, you know, the, the lack of having, you know, roots, how that is reflective of how people perceive you as a person. Right. And I, I really do. I feel like that is one of the reasons why having something like character based lending is so important because it, it shows uh, not only what, you know, what your roots are, but it educates people and why it's so important. And but Ken, Absolutely. you're right. Those small dollar loans are what are so needed. Those are uh, the small loans that help you transition from one point to another. You know, uh, one of the things that my credit union is looking into are very micro or very small micro loan, micro loan dollars. You know, right. you know, you need um, 150 bucks to get into a trade show because that trade show is going to help move your business to the next level. But things are right. so tight right now that you need that 150 bucks. So and there's, you know, there's right. not places where you can go that you can do that relatively, not only safely, but have someone along with you, like a coach or a credit counselor to make sure, especially if you haven't ha had credit before, uh, to help right. you navigate it in a well, in a way that um, will be, you know, good for you and uh, um, good for your business. Right. Too. But, but you're right. You don't need one hundred and fifty thousand. So many companies don't need one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And to be completely honest educating people on how to and how much money they actually need versus what they think they need and also what they can handle paying back. Yeah. So well, that's the, <laughs> well, that's the thing, you know, like if you go back to the guys in the RVs, they're basically not just guys, just like families, you know, their businesses failed. So they come, uh, uh, they come back to the Willamette Valley and they're not, they're not bums, their businesses failed. Right. And uh, so they're, they're eager to get back into the saddle. Like they're entrepreneurs. So they have a high risk tolerance and, you know, it might've been rough. So, you know, this is one of the things that got me really thinking about what we call a reputation system within our software is the recognition that, you know, um, there might be a way to introduce um, something like a social currency where you can say, you could, you know, talk to a neighbor and you could hold up your mobile device and say, you know, I am part of the community. It's, it's like, you know, I guess something akin to a next door, except that it's not limited to those who live in houses, right? So somebody could say, you know, you might recognize me as the guy in the um, in the van that parks at the end of the street, but I've got, you know, 1100 positive ratings because I'm basically the neighborhood handyman, right? And, and, and exactly one of the things right. we, we wanted to be able to build into this is that the ability to secure um, a, a, a loan from a community bank, if you will, with mm -hmm. your reputation as your only form of collateral. Because again, when you this, there's a reason that you see people alongside the road working on their cars that they're sleeping in is that that's actually the thing that put them over the top. Like they have lost everything and then their car breaks. And that's a, that's a scary place is if they lose their car, then they're in a tent. And then you know how that happens. They get their tents thrown into a dumpster and then they're destitute, right? They're just okay. one or two stumbles away from death. And, you know, again, a lot of them are vets, which is sort of my soft spot. So, you know, um, yeah, uh, that reputation thing is, 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 is important. And, and we can't just, you know, look at, look at, I don't know, we can, I guess it's, I can't tell people what they can or can't do, but there might be a limiting factor if the, your only basis of, of evaluating a person's character is whether or not they drive a nice car and have a big house, right? Oh, I know, I know. And what you, what you were just talking about is, hey, yeah, uh, I might be the guy that's living in my van up the street. Let me show you how many, you know, uh, folks can attest to the quality of my work. That's really social capital, right? So whenever you well, can... Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things that Kent and I have been working on is language. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, we refer to 
this whole group, rather than saying you're homeless or you're destitute or any of those kinds of othering concepts, is we're, we're in this great boat, great big boat, maybe it's not a great boat, called ec- economic refugees. Mm-hmm. Because we're right. really being um, pushed out at every level from the usual safety net. Um, that are that are separating people into um, haves and have-nots. Yeah, because more of us. Wider and, and, wider. and so with what? Yeah, yeah, and, and and we we literally see it. You know, like everywhere you go, you see it. And and when I lived in Santa Monica in the in the nineties, um, you know, we were early adopters there for the homeless problem. It was like they. They were there and I, and I kind of, you know, it's like, if I'm going to be homeless, I'd rather be by the beach than, you know, in Philadelphia for the winter, because that's a pretty rough ride. And the way that it was woven into the storyline there is that they started feeding people on the grounds of City Hall at five o'clock every day while they worked on the problem, while they, you know, they kept them into kind of the human storyline. But eventually, you know, that capacity was overrun. And there was they and it became this great um, story of othering that you stop seeing them as actual people. You stop looking at them as, as these people who are complex and well, has more to bring forward. Right. So as Kent was saying, how can you actually emerge that? Yeah, you know, well, and and then and pretend like it doesn't exist if you other if, if you add, you know add on those layers of othering, right? It, right. We talked yeah. into that. It's not our problem. And well, that I think is one of the biggest problems is the lack of compassion and mm-hmm. connecting with, with other people on a very, you know, I keep saying this on a very human level, but mm-hmm. right now I think that we need that more than ever right now. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, this is a, I mean, I shared my experience with, with, you know, sleeping in my truck in 2017, but it wasn't exactly my first brush with it. We, we had two house fires when I was a kid. So we lost everything twice. And fortunately, we could stay with my grandma, but you know, also there was a while there where I had just one pair of pants and the kids at school made fun of me because I smelled bad. Right. So like, I've kind of dealt with that. Right. And then, you know, my, my youngest brother was on the streets for a bit. My middle brother has actually made a pretty good name for himself working among the homeless in Portland. Um, those that are intense and, and that kind of thing. And so I'm really liking the framing of economic refugees because it, it allows us to, to, um, to shift it a little bit. Um, uh, uh, because when you frame it that way, that becomes, a, that allows us to, to stop the, what Ruth calls the othering, right? Like um, people might be in a house, but they're, but they're, they are probably aware of the fact that they're just accumulating debt and they are just one or two poor choices away from being on the streets. Right. And, uh, and, and, and yet like, okay, that's great. But if you spent so much time savagely attacking those that are not in houses now, what are you going to do? Right. And, you know, we should not be surprised that the rates of suicide are going up. It's a, it's a scary place to be. And, and the fact these are the many reasons why we are inspired to try to put this work together, the anti-fragile playbook, and to really emphasize action is to, to let people know that, you know, in the context of, of, of despair, there is, there is reason for hope. And, mm-hmm. and the cool thing about it is all we have to do is just go back, look, back and look at what our grandmas and our great grandmas did, right? Like, it's not like we're, we're planning a trip to the Mar- up to Mars, right? <laughs> like, it's just go back to what works, you know? So, um, which, which strangely is easier to fund, you know, than yeah, actual, right? actual blueprint for a way forward that's inclusive of all with no exceptions. Right. Yeah, that's 
There's one thing, uh, Ruth, thinking about, um, you know, the grandmas again and, and your, uh, in, in the awesome article that you just wrote. Um, there was, there's, I think from that time until now-ish, you know, there's this, there's this whole idea um, of needing other people and being vulnerable um, mm -hmm. is something is a weakness. Right. And so we have intentionally isolated ourselves in our neighborhoods from our family. Um, I mean, if you take a look and see how newer neighborhoods are built, um, they're built for cars, not for people. But um, but I think that there is a shift being saying that it is not only is it OK to need other people, but we're supposed to need other people. Right? right and able to have the, it's how we got here right <laughs> and you know it's other people and actually acknowledging and using each other's strengths makes right. not only us more whole as individual humans but it makes our neighborhoods much more resilient and you know anti-fragile to handle some of the things that are going on i know that i've right. shared study with you guys before um, there was a study done a few years ago. There was a drought in Chicago and um, and two neighborhoods that were essentially the same on paper, demographics, uh, socioeconomic levels, employment, poverty, all of that were roughly the same. Um, these two neighborhoods were side by side and one neighborhood had virtually no, fa no fatalities during this heat wave and the other had right. And the one difference between those two neighborhoods is, is, is that the, uh, the neighborhood that had no fatalities, they checked on each other. Mm -hmm. yeah. They knocked on each other's doors and they said, how are you doing? What do you need? Right. How can I help? Or the flip side of it, they knew people who they could call and saying, hey, I need help. That other neighborhood didn't have that social infrastructure. So people right. died because nobody was saying, how are you? What can I do for you? And then yet yeah, the tragic well, thing is it's a bit of a self-created phenomenon because the people who end up in those places are that's usually why they move there, you know, like, and that's sort of this this the sole difference between you know um, East Portland and West Portland, for instance, is that what you when you learn and it's not true of all areas of West Portland, but what you run into in a hurry is you think you moved to a nice neighborhood, but you're surrounded by people who um, who don't really want to talk to their neighbors. In fact, some of them will tell you like I'm out here because I don't want to have to see my neighbors. Like I do my job, I come home. This is my castle. I don't want to talk to anybody, right? And so there are there are those who self-select, and that's you know that's that's fine but that, that can be perilous, right? Then what happens, you have a stroke and then, you know, and I use that example, people said, but I, I'll just call the doctor. And I'm like, well, that's great. You got a plan, airtight plan. And I'm not trying to convince you to join our commune, right? I get it, it's not <laughs> your thing, <laughs> right? But, you know. Well, and, and, you know, and we talked about this the other day too, is, you know, my late husband, Keith, was in a wheelchair. So he didn't have any choice but to lead with vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And what that did is it opened a way for others to bring forward their vulnerability. So it changed the character of our street in the South Austin neighborhood where people were like, oh, okay, I have a chance to bring forward more of who I am. Mm -hmm. You know, I can bring forward these invisible capitals that maybe I don't get to express in other parts of my life. Mm 
And that was such a great, you know, learning experience for me as an observer. Again, this is paying attention, right? That's our capital Mm -hmm. to be able to, after Keith passed away is to be able to return the, the, the favor, continue the story as other of our neighbors aged or they became infirm or disconnected in whatever way we still checked in on each other. Now I haven't lived on that street for a few years now, but from what I hear that's dropped off, Um, even though, you know, the person who moved into, into the house was in a wheelchair. She just didn't have the same, personality you know she Keith was mm-hmm. very much an extrovert and and mm-hmm. basically said hey here I am let's have a story and so it's you know when we when we keep getting the feedback that it's dangerous to be vulnerable we shut down so much of ourselves yeah and right. we do build walls you know we do isolate yeah. ourselves in these spaces and so Kent when you were talking about people who move into these more isolated areas I'll just call the doctor. No, you won't, because rural hospitals are shutting down. Okay. You you yeah. may not have Wi-Fi access. I mean, that the, the things yeah. you take as a convenience in the city, they're just not available, and we have to look at that too. So when you're talking about community lending and looking at reputation and looking at character, you know that goes back to the co-op mindset of these rural areas, because right. they knew they had to depend on each other. They have a desire to have a different weave. And so to bring this in and and use it as kind of the loom that we're doing, we're doing this on a slow tech where it's sustainable, local, uh, organic work plus technology. So it's Mm -hmm. this this way that we can actually help weave a new fabric of community because we can see on a government level, the safety nets are just not there anymore. No, so you yeah. we have to be each other's safety net. Well, that's totally true. Exactly. I just we are it, each other's it, keeper. We mm-hmm. are. It brings to mind my my mom. Um, um, they moved from Tucson to uh, um, to like a rural, very rural area of Oregon, uh, outside of Coos Bay, Southern Oregon. Actually, um, they lived on um, a road called Old Wagon Road, which is, which is apt, you know. So they got ten acres of land and a house and. So they joined the volunteer fire department and I was asking her like, it must be cool. You know, you got all these fires. And she said, no, most of what we do is just recover bodies. <laughs> it's, because oh, no. people move. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's what commas it is. The thing is people move out there and then they just, they, 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 they this is what they work towards. And then they, then they die. Right. And uh, cause that's, that's what happens. So the thing is, is that, you know, what this reveals is that this is why you'd put together that fabric of community. Right. So you can figure out, mm-hmm. you know, why Jim hasn't come to church for two weeks <laughs> you know what I mean like there might be something that mm-hmm. happened you know um, and that's a really like extreme example but you know like the example that we keep talking about is um, you know let's say that somebody had a rough day at work so they decide to go for a walk they walk for an hour in a loop around their city and if there's a you know an average density um, of that you would see in places like Denver Portland or Tacoma or Seattle or Austin, then you've just walked around about 1200 homes or 5,000 people. And what Ruth and I talk a lot about is, you know, how do you begin that collaboration? And so a lot of what we've said is, you know, find that one other person you can really collaborate with. And then inevitably people start talking about if we just had money, which is sort of right, but not exactly right. Like, like what we've talked about is how you can, you can reveal and unlock soft capital so you can build that Mm -hmm. foundation necessary to bring in the hard capital. So in this case, you're talking about hard capital. But in this example I'm talking about, it's it's a it's a it's a discrete community. We're not talking about fixing the whole city. We're talking about 
a subset of a zip code, right? right. And uh, and in that context, you know, we had some examples. Like I was talking about in Portland, the guys in the RVs. Um, what they wanted to do is they would offer it. They would say, "Do you live in the neighborhood?" I said, "Yeah, I live down there on 66 and Clickitat." And they'd say, "Well, you know, I could keep an eye on the neighborhood. I'm out here all the time at night. Uh, I am a grandpa, and and I and I and I'm a veteran, and I know how to keep an eye out for criminals." What he's doing is he's he's leading with his reputation. He's just saying, "Please acknowledge me as a person. I yeah. will look out for you." In exchange, can you help me fix on fix my van? <laughs> That's basically what they're saying. You know, they're trying to leverage their um, the things that, that should be acknowledged as, uh, as 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 forms of soft capital that, that might be leveraged as a, as a form of collateral in exchange for some services, right? Uh, yeah. And that's kind of where we are, you know. Yeah, using uh, uh, I love that because uh, basically I could use my knowledge and skills and my other relationships um, as collateral for. Um, kind of, you know, bar, quote unquote, borrowing a, you know, a thought or a, a, some experience that you have, or even like a hard resource, like a, um, you know, like the screwdriver that you're going to need to, um, you know, fix whatever. I am not a mechanic. So I'm assuming that you're going to need a screwdriver at some point whenever you're fixing something. I was a mechanic. I was a mechanic in the combat communication (laughs) squadron. So I knew how to do it with just a few tools. And yeah, I mean, this is the thing is that what usually comes up with enough of these conversations is they need something which might resemble a commons, which is basically a driveway. (laughs) That's really what they're looking for. Because if they're on the street and they're working on it, that's going to get towed. And if it gets towed, they lose all of their grandchildren's photos. That's what happens. It's just that perilous, you know. Well, but, but even the the Hall- Halloween experience you had last night is a good example of transaction versus transformation. You know, so here's the transaction: is they're giving away candy, but look at how it affected your girls. Look at how they had this joy that came out of it. This, you know, invisible capital that actually is fueling them through today. And, well, you know, and then the people who gave it away have the same feeling. I almost want to talk about it because we are talking about like, you know, Ruth and I live literally walking distance from one another. So um, the scale that we talk about, you know, you walk for an hour in a loop around your neighborhood is literally inclusive to the neighborhood that she and I live within, which is a bizarre happenstance, all things considered, <laughs> you know. And um, so uh, that's where the girls and I went um, uh, trick or treating. And, and what we kept encountering is something I've never seen before, which is people had gone, they'd pulled out all stops. And I don't know if it's because they were embracing a, a, a novel opportunity to celebrate, or maybe they were seeking some catharsis after, you know, whatever. But I mean, they had their yards decorated, they pulled out, I mean, they pulled out all stops. And, um, and it was fun. It was really actually a, a, a great thing. And, and people are, Janina's yelling out the window, happy Halloween. <laughs> and the girls are laughing so hard and people are yelling back and there's fog machines and there's lights. And, um, and then, you know, people really enjoyed the pneumatic tube delivery vehicle for the, the candy. Uh, but they went a little over the top as well. They're like, just take as much as you want. Right. And so, yeah, now the girls are still talking about it. that was the best Halloween they've ever had. Right. And uh, I mean, we laughed, we laughed so long and so hard. It was hilarious. I love, I love that you guys had such a good time uh, last night, Kent. And what you guys are, uh, you guys are reminding me kind of um, a bit about how good it feels to do something good for someone else. And mm-hmm. actually, uh, we're physiologically built to do that. Um, I think it was, oh, I'm a, 
I, I really enjoy listening to and reading Simon Sinek. And he was talking about yeah. how kindness is really built it. We're hard, hardwired for it. So if I do right. something nice for you, Ruth, it makes me feel good, right? right. It makes you mm-hmm. feel and uh, after you get that good feeling you you get addicted to it so you want to do it again but what's really interesting is if if kent witnesses me doing something kind for ruth it makes him feel good too and now he wants to go and do something kind for someone else so it makes us feel good and we want to continue to do it over and over and over again but our body and our brain are built for that kind of connectivity and that relationship building that you guys are talking about. Yeah, and, here, and well, here's and, the thing and, too. And that's that's Most what we're missing generous. with this COVID shutdown, right? Is yeah. that people are not finding ways to express it. So it leads to this depression. It leads to disconnection from a future. Mm-hmm. And here's so the all of these, these containers for that potential, that's what we're trying to do is to identify and activate them. Yeah. Well, here, here's the other thing, too, is that just because apparently becoming in a state of um, remaining in a state of perpetual outrage apparently is the national pastime now because um, people will yeah. literally spend hours investing in reasons to stay completely outraged. There's this false belief that the other side are, is entirely constituted of, with, of bad people. Right. And it doesn't right. really work that way. I, you know, I know a lot of different people across a lot of different political spectrums. And overwhelmingly, these people are generous to their community. It's really interesting as an aside, because pretty much nobody, that's not true. Not very many people are enthusiastic about universal basic income, right? But when you talk about basic income for your community, it's entirely different. <laughs> it's entirely different, right? And you just have to call it a different thing. If you say, how about in your church, there was a, there was a fund available for somebody to get through. Let's say that, you know, um, a woman's husband died uh, right after she had a baby and uh, and she's on the edge of of being thrown into the streets and they'd say, well, yeah, she's part of the, she's part of the church. I absolutely want to make sure she's taken care of. Right. And so it just depends. It depends on people's definition of community. They can be actually quite generous, but this mm-hmm. othering that, that Ruth talked about, it's, it's not just, you know, kind of like I would call the national pastime, but it doesn't help that, you know, the media essentially monetizes a state of perpetual drama to the extent that we actually believe that we're surrounded by people who aren't generous. It's not exactly true, but this is part of our emphasis on trying to get people to focus back on their communities because it's mm-hmm. their community, right? And, and, and as it turns out, this is great about the Halloween thing, uh, an overwhelming, overwhelming percentage of the, of, the, of the community was invested in generosity for the community itself, which is cool. That's really cool, right? Yes. Uh, we should feel good about it. And, it, you know, the more people who feel good about it when things like that happen in their community, they want to do it again. Right. So it'll be really interesting to see how, you know, as we kind of roll into the holidays, the holiday season, how communities and neighborhoods are going to start interacting with each other um, right. as it gets kind of colder and darker. And that's one of the things is that I think this is going to be a long winter and having those relationships and those connections in our in our neighborhoods are going to be much more important now because during this and, and it's going to be right. a little bit more intentional too because whenever whenever the weather is warm people are outside and are interconnecting in a way that seems a little bit more organic and maybe even a little serendipitous and safer right right um but so i think we're going to have to be a little bit more intentional over the next few months about maintaining those kind of relationships and creating moments of joy like you were talking about um uh, that, that you and your girls had last night, Kent, I think we're going to need a little bit more, you know, to be more intentional about that. And it's only with connecting with other people 
that yeah. we can yeah, well, I usually do it through potlucks and stuff. I mean, that's that's how I roll. Or, um, you know, I've got this friend, Keisha, and I'm thinking I might have to make her a blackberry pie and drive it up to Colleen in, in exchange for, she's working on a peach cobbler. And this is exactly the kind of competition I want to get in because that's the one I want to win and lose and follow, right? Because <laughs> she's never she's never made a blackberry pie. And she says, well, she's got to step up her peach cobbler game before we get into a competition. I'm all for it, though. I mean, I want to win and lose that, right? But what that creates is this fabric of community between her kids and mine, which is kind of what I'm shooting for. And uh, she's in Colleen. It's not even close, but it's community, right? And my aunt and I did this for a long time, by the way, after my grandma Ruth died. Uh, uh, we decided we would get into this friendly competition to make pies. Um, and she just, man, she could knock them out with consistency and regularity. It's, it's absurd how good she is at it. Um, and, uh, and I'm a little bit more, I sort of follow the recipe, but it's fun. It's a great basis of, of, of sharing. Oh, that was the other thing. Keisha's working on, um, uh, uh, on, uh, you know, uh, brisket. And then I got this guy, Patrick, that I know that lives South. And he said, well, I've got some brisket. I can share whatever. That's how it happens. If you can get mm -hmm. people to step forward with food, that's how you get people to crack open. But I actually do that with the homeless around here. I'm like, I'll buy you a taco. If we can, you know, um, just shoot the breeze i was going to say something else but i'm going to try to keep this g-rated and then we end up sitting on a curve eating tacos and then they talk and inevitably they're vets or they had a health thing <laughs> it's like they're just they're just us they just happen to not be in a house right and it's food food is our, our baseline on this one you know well i'm so i'm so glad that you bring up food too uh because americans look at food well by and large a little bit differently than most of uh, most of the world right or at least in recent years, because if you take a look at food, um, most of us, and I think that's changing a little bit, at least that's how I grew up, it was all about um, cost and convenience. Mm -hmm. I mean, I grew up on, um, you know, if you guys, if you listeners out there, if you guys still do hamburger helper, that's cool, but um, <laughs> that's the kind of stuff that I grew up on, right? And, uh, but the rest of the world looks at food because it is a vehicle for tradition, right? It's about taste, well, tradition. It's about getting together and, you know, sharing a moment. And, and in a way that a lot of Americans just don't. And I feel like if we had a better connection with, with our food, how to cook it, how to serve it, how to share it. And I know that's a big part of, um, of, of the playbook, right, is how food and how your food is grown and who prepares it and how you get access to it is a really vital part of a thriving, of a, of a thriving community. It's, it's our well, contention. And, and to, it's not only you, the right. You, go ahead, Ruth, go ahead. You, you brought up convenience. And one of the things we're looking at is what is the cost of convenience? What does it cost us? Mm -hmm. So people who say, well, I can just order from Amazon or I can go to Diner Dash or I can have you know, like the whole world brought to me, they've lost the human connection. You know, there it, it's, it, and, and it takes a lot of money for that convenience. <laughs> so you've moved into this whole trans transactional story. You, there's no, you know, personal connection to it. And that's what oh, we're, that's, that's part of the stress that people are feeling mm -hmm. is, you know, when you're, when you were talking about, you know, other parts of the world, how they value the cultural aspects of food. Well, food, food is our entry point for people to tell us who we are, what we value, how we value them, where, what our history is, what we are investing in as a shared future. As Kent was saying, do an exchange between a blackberry pie and a peach cobbler. 
you know, that's a win-win. There's nobody losing in that transaction at all, right? And so, and so that's what we have to do. And, um, you know, so here we are in, in America where it's such a literal melting pot. Everybody has a food tradition. Everybody wants to bring, that's the easiest way for there to bring their history forward into a, a, a future. And we, we engage with it and we admire it and we savor it literally and figuratively. And so when Kent talks about growing up at the feet of giants by being in the kitchen with his grandmother, you know, that is something everybody can relate to. You know, we're, we're able to, to find this shared enjoyment that is not just transactional where it's like, great, I ate today. It's transformational because great, I, I, I um, found a way to embody a feeling of future, a feeling of history and a feeling of present. And so that's where I like, you know, I talk about we need these simple entry points to complexity because yeah. we're actually complex creatures. But this idea of convenience has reduced our use in the world. Yep. We just need to be the person putting the coin in the machine rather than helping to design the machine. And it shows how we've lived in this very fragile storyline. And it's a big part of our inspiration to bring forward the anti-fragile playbook mm-hmm. is yeah. that people, well, it's not that we're, it's not that we're, we're telling people what to do. We're just giving them a reminder of who else they are. Well, right. I, I think not only that, but you're giving them a little bit of permission to start thinking differently. Yeah. And to remember, you know, it's like to, to tap into that shared memory that has been suppressed because it hasn't been, um, you know, fed, as it were. Yeah, I'm so glad that you say memory because, you know, um, thinking of, of the grandmothers, I mean, some of the greatest memories I've ever had is cooking with my with my Mima, who's no longer here. Mm-hmm. And uh, so whenever I have those memories of cooking with her, I get to time travel a little bit, right? Right. And remember who she is and also in, uh, and what she meant to me and how that relationship played into who I am now. Right. And so having mm-hmm. those memories, I'm, you know, those are, you know, that's currency too, right? Well, that's definitely. Oh, yeah. When I was, when I was doing skateboard advocacy, the thing that actually made the difference between a successful endeavor and, a, and, a, and one that wasn't is if somebody could serve as the a foundation, the basis of community with, within their communities. And it was like I, I've talked about, it was usually the moms, although that's, a, that's an archetype. It wasn't always women. It was like Andy Andrews in, in Haley, Idaho, who had lost his son um, while he was skateboarding. And so he became that hub. And, and it's essentially over food. You just, you know, you make things available. People talk. It sort of builds that that community, and that's what turns all that, all that investment at, at levels what we consider soft capital into a foundation necessary to start securing hard capital. And in the case of Andy, he spent years generating enough money from the community and through other sources to actually get a park built in that town, so other people didn't have to lose their children. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's the thing I'd learned over and over again. And so that's really, there's some pragmatic reasons why we focus on the food as well, is that it's not just a source of catharsis. It's not just a way that you can kick off a, a feedback loop of protopia, protopian feedback loop, which is which is distinguished from utopia, by the way, is that utopia is by definition impossible to achieve. But protopia is that things become progressively better just a little bit at a time, one step at a time. So if you can if you can get people rallied around that, I, I actually believe that people will. They'll say, well, maybe, maybe I'll go for a walk in my neighborhood and I'll go out of my way to just 
get to know maybe one or two other people and food is the way that you get to know them or maybe over a coffee or whatever, but eventually you form that basis of collaboration and from there start putting together plans on how to help your community. And that's, that's our, 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 our you know, uh, that's the basic foundation for the anti-fragile playbook. But ultimately it's, it's so the neighborhood can do a rejuvenation utilizing the wealth that's, that's within the community um, not limited to hard capital. Um, although it is interesting that you are providing hard capital. You have um, private label uh, opportunities for a community. Do you guys do that? Where you make capital available and then they can redistribute. Um, uh, does that make sense? Do you know what I'm, what I'm saying? I, I, I do know what you're talking about. And, um, not, not yet that directly. One of the things we do have, and almost all credit unions have the capability of doing this, but they, um, they don't take advantage of it. You can actually share secure a loan. And what I mean by that is you can do something as simple as, you know, take a hundred bucks, 500 bucks, $5,000 and right. put it into a certificate of, a, of deposit. And that's actually used as hard collateral. So the credit union can either, um, uh, can, you know, give out one $5,000 loan or, right. um, you know, 10, $500 loans to, to right. 10 different people. So you hmm. can actually, as an individual, you can actually um, secure loans to uh, uh, other people uh, in the community. So we have that right. capability. Um, we also have the capability of uh, for um, uh, more than one person uh, to create a pool that can be lent out as well. Mm -hmm. So we have mm -hmm. that capability within our credit union for people to invest directly in other people by um, you know, opening up a certificate of deposit for X amount of dollars, and then that credit, and then the credit union can lend out that money. Um, it can be for sp specific purposes, like to start a company, or it can also be for very general purposes, like it can, uh, you know, uh, emergency loans for for folks who have to go to the dentist or get their car fixed or uh, ha you know take their cat to the vet. Um, right. Wow, that's great. We have that. No, it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. well, and it's it's interesting because I'm actually um, Ruth. I'm literally corresponding with him right now, and he's talking about he's actually um, creating his plans for for a bank. He just registered a domain name, and he, and he aspires to provide a bank for the underbanked and the unbanked in Texas, with Austin okay. in particular. So he's working on capital. I mean, this is I think you know we're not the only ones that are, are working on this. Um, I, I don't know if you saw Chris. We released another video. Um, was it yesterday, or the day before, that talked about. Um, you know, part of the anti-fragile playbook is, is, is software that makes this even really viable. And, and the way it works financially is that we just encourage the community to do business with the community and to stop sending transaction-based revenue to Amazon and eBay, basically. Right. Um, when you do that, that actually opens up significant sources of hard capital because people don't realize how much money they send to those institutions. Right. And, um, and it, you know, and people will say, well, well, would people do it? And the answer is simple. They, uh, they not only do, they actually prefer to, they, they prefer to do business with people they know, particularly people in their community because it results in lower fraud and, um, and, uh, and, and better margins and they enjoy the transactions. Right. But, yeah, and um, so much of the the monetary exchange that happens, especially folks that are uh, either uh, underbanked or not banked at all, absolutely that way mm -hmm. anyway, right? Yeah, 
Well, and, and yeah, and the way that works financially is that, you know, uh, the community itself gets to private label an app. So it could be called the, you know, whatever, whatever the neighborhood is, it could just be called that app. And it's just sort of a private label version of, you know, a marketplace. And anyway, you know, we recommend a marginal transaction fee of uh, 5%, but the community keeps that transaction fee. And that might not sound like much, but man, it really adds up in a hurry. So yes. again, if a person goes for a walk for an hour, they end up encircling a neighborhood with 1200 houses, 5,000 people. And if they can get a thousand people, uh, just 20% of them to participate in the marketplace, um, mm -hmm. that's pretty promising actually. Cause even if only a hundred of them are selling and 900 are buying and, and that would be people, selling food to one another stuff like Keisha's is doing right yep. even that that actually unlocks some pretty interesting numbers on it so so um uh just those numbers i just shared you know um a thousand people participating a hundred sellers uh, uh uh you know 900 buyers and just a moderate level of, of transactions and a five percent transaction fee the people who are selling end up generating 400 extra dollars a month in in and revenue, which doesn't sound like much, but man, for a lot of people, that is. For me, I, I'd, I'd be buying more clothes for my girls, right? Mm -hmm. But for the community, the community generates about $2,000 a month in transaction-based revenue. And so that is an interesting number there because the community, you know, what, what does the community do with it? Now, let's say the community organizes a nonprofit. They could actually approach your institution and say, we, we can we can demonstrate to you that we have a revenue stream. So yeah. then the community could actually secure one of these loan options you're talking about and then turn back around and say, let's, let's set up a commons so people can work on cars or yeah. let's put together a program that teaches people how to, how to do urban farming. So we can actually start sourcing our vegetables. There's two growing seasons in Texas, by the way, I just think that's amazing. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and so imagine if we start doing that, the numbers on it actually magnify. If you can get people to start sourcing from within the community itself, yeah. that actually, um, based on our calculations, it, it triples the transactions, <laughs> which yeah, actually triples the money library. back to the community. Sorry. As having a tool library is a fantastic resource yeah. for a community. To yeah. Have. Yeah. And so, so in this case, we in a tool library and you guys can, um, can, uh, and have a community garden. Yeah. Throw in a financial institution. <laughs> well, that's the, and that's the thing. Just think about it. Like in this case, it starts to come together. It's like, we're not talking about a, a, a economic rejuvenation of an entire country or an entire state or an entire city. We're talking about a subset of a zip code that becomes a lot more bite-sized and based on the numbers we just, I just shared, you know, um, I actually, and, and an institution such as the one you work for, I actually think we could have a conversation and say, okay, well, here's what we've got. We've got a hundred sellers, 900 buyers. We're generating $2,000 a month. It's going into the nonprofit. Here's our, here's our transaction ledger. You can take a look at it. So what do you think? You know, can we, can we get a loan of like 1500 bucks? Right. Yeah. Cause I think that's actually how the community would work. Um, because in this case, we're not talking about a million dollar loan. We're talking about, you know, we need to get a couple of tiny homes so these people don't freeze to death, right? Right, and and I also think it's really important too to uh, make sure that the expectations are doable, right? Because some, right. Um, and so taking those very small wins and being able to collect those stories because what it does is it reduces the barrier to entry to not only for yeah. people to um, uh, want to take part in that in in that in this economy that you guys right. are but also just um, getting not only buy-in, but to believe in it too, because I think it's not a, a, a complex or hard concept, right? It's just right. A, a, a new one for some people. So right. I think by 
really reducing the barriers of entry and making it easy uh -huh. for Right. is um is definitely the way to go yeah i mean again the the, the answer fragile playbook would be something akin to you know a recipe book how to get from point a to point yeah. b right mm -hmm. uh and so if you think of this in terms of our, our conversation so far it's been a journey it's it's begun with uh, it's began with you know uh, how to acknowledge how to recognize and acknowledge forms of soft capital that are necessary for for bootstrapping a collaboration and once you've created that collaboration you're you're you know you're in a basis where you can you can start exploring that statement it takes money to make money but but we've code switched that a little bit it's not just it's just a hard capital it takes an investment in soft capital to form a foundation necessary to receive small bits of, of hard capital so you can get more capital right but what makes this really easy is we're not saying do this for the whole country do this for a subset of your community beginning with just a few people and that's bite-sized, right? And and if it fails, it's not a huge failure. That's right. <laughs> it's pretty small, right? So you know. Yeah. So you guys are you're, you guys are doing the things that the big bankers want you to do, which is, um, you know, mitigate your risk, and you mitigate your right. risk building relationships with other people. Well, and and we're identifying and bringing forward the, the um, hidden strengths of the community, that there's people who are already habituated to do the community policing because they're just watching and seeing what's going on. They know who needs a little extra help. There's a community outside of Detroit where they don't have a lot of money capital, but what they have is attention capital and they have caring capital and they have you know, all of that community and trust and relationship. And I think that they would really benefit from having a program as you're talking about with alternative federal credit unions, because then they can literally bank their capital, you know, in a way that is meaningful to the community. So you've acknowledged that they are, they have a character and the community reflects that. And it's like, great, let's, let's put a, a container around that so that other people can engage with it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's about how do we bring it to the level of consciousness that people can engage with it. So it's, and, and it, especially as it comes to gentrification, because there's any number of stories that you could read about people who were just known as to be characters in the community as it was. And then the, the people, the gentrification comes in and it all becomes this dollar game. And so anybody right. who's disturbing their story of of the, the what they bought into is seen as a problem rather than just part of the kind of the the warp and the wolf of the weave right yeah. it's just like right. it's part of the complexity and so that's right. another opportunity here is to find a way to to welcome in the complexity mm -hmm. right well i mean and 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 this all sounds like so much of what we talk about sounds ethereal, uh, but it's actually real stuff. And the, the, what it would look like, <laughs> what it would look like from the perspective of your organization is it would be, you know, an LLC that is um, organized as a nonprofit representing a community with um, uh, operations cost and program cost um, being covered by um, basically transaction-based revenue that is facilitating work opportunities for a, a discrete subset of the population like it ends up looking like a really well-structured nonprofit. and i used to run a nonprofit, and then i was with the tony hawk foundation and learned a lot about how you can unlock 
individual and corporate contributions, which gives you a lot of discretionary spending. So a lot of that goes into the anti-fragile playbook. So from the perspective of your organization, it, there's really nothing squishy about it. It just looks like a well-run nonprofit. Um, and then, you know, what, what, what we wanted to explore in this conversation is that there are such a thing as institutions out there that aren't these terrible banks. They actually have some right. really innovative programs out there. And, and again, you know, you're not looking for, you're not looking for, a community that's looking out for its community isn't going to come to you saying we're looking for a billion dollar trillion dollar loan they're probably saying you know what we're looking to do is to secure you know a few tens of thousands so we can do this because we've got people in our community that are going to starve to death or they're going to freeze to death or we want to put together a tool library so people can work on their cars or we want to um, start preparing you know put together some suspended um, gardens um, because we want to start sourcing uh, vegetables from within the community or whatever and that starts to look very realistic all of a sudden, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and you're right. That hard capital can certainly play a role, but a relatively small one, right? right. But you need to have it um, for the system to, to be complete. So, but, but Kent, you're absolutely right. There are, there's community development credit unions. There are actually community development banks as well. Mm -hmm. um, and almost every... You know, I, well, not every community, but um, but close. So, uh, but, but yeah. yeah, financial institutions don't have to be the big, bad, soul-sucking money grubbers. Right. Um, uh, a lot of them are. <laughs> right. But there are some really great financial tools out there that can help uh, play a part uh, for neighborhoods that, you know, can really use the anti-fragile uh, playbook and to help their community grow. Yeah, I mean, I'm just, you know, what we're trying to do is, and actually you're part of the team, is just take what we've learned over years of doing advocacy and just make it easy for someone to pick this up and say, I want to I want to do something about my neighborhood, if only because it's cathartic. It just makes people feel good. So, yes. you know, in terms of a journey, it's just somebody finding their Ruth or their Kent, which is sort of our foundation for our collaboration or their Trudy. Like this, this is our baseline, right? And we just we just enjoy each other's company and and an outcome of that level of enjoyment is a high quality product right it just happens to be our basis for being friends right and 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 what somebody would do we believe is they would follow the anti-fragile playbook they would you know choose a discrete community and they would get this thing going and next thing you know they're generating say a thousand or two thousand dollars a month into a community fund and then they just go to an institution such as yours and say you know we'd like to borrow just to a little bit of money because we want to put together a garden for the community and yeah. and we can pay you back at this rate and frequency and and boom you've just done it and you don't have to grovel for grants and you don't have to fight over resources and you don't have to do all that it's just pretty straightforward actually you know it, it is and uh, my organization alternatives um you know we've talked a lot about businesses we also offer you know small loans to you know or and big loans to individuals but can't we also we're one of the <laughs> Um, only, not really only organizations, but we're one of the only financial institution. We actually lend to nonprofits too. And uh, um, so again, it's all about getting access to capital to all parts of our community right. in a way that's right. filled with integrity and respect. Yeah. No, I'm digging it. This is a great conversation, mm -hmm. I, I, but I enjoy every time we have a phone call. They always end up going longer than we expected. So uh, we should wrap though, because I should probably see how much my daughters, how much candy my daughters will eat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. 
but I, hey, I appreciate it. I hope you have a good day. Hey, Ruth, you, you available for a walk a little bit later? I can get someone to fly cover. We can do a quick circuit around the neighborhood. What do you think? We lost Ruth. She dropped off. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I guess I'll wrap this uh, and I'll call Ruth. Thanks, Chris. It's good talking to you. I lost uh, you too. I'll let, I'll let you know how it goes. Yeah, sorry, I kind of lost you too. Uh, it's good talking to you, Chris. <laughs> you too. Thanks so much. All right, cheers.